Welcome to Decolonize Your Destiny podcast. I'm your host, Ingrid LaFleur. Today, we are talking about decolonizing our food with guest Shane Bernardo. I met Shane a couple years ago and I've always been thoroughly impressed with his commitment to ensuring that justice exists here in Detroit and worldwide. Shane Bernardo is a long life Detroit resident active within the grassroots food justice movement in Detroit. He is an anti-racism facilitator, a board member for the Michigan Farmers Market Association, and a founding member of Swimming and the Detroit River, an environmental justice storytelling collective. Shane has also been awarded fellowships with the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership, the Detroit Equity Action Lab, and Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture. Shane currently consults, organizes, facilitates, speaks, and writes on food justice issues that lie at the intersections of food, health, healing, and spirituality. Welcome, Shane. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. So I just want to jump right into it. I I believe that I really came to understand decolonization through our relationship, um, which we met, what, like... Seven years ago, maybe? Yeah, was that the Cass Commons? Yeah. Right? (laughs) Was it the Cass Commons? Actually, no. That's when we had the the conference. That's right. What was it? Uh, Spirit? Spirit Spirit and Roots at the Cass Commons. Yes. But actually, no. The first place we met at was Charles A. A. Trite in the basement. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. And we we have common friends and, and colleagues and in relationship to both of us. Definitely. So that was in the beginning of me really understanding the social justice movement and all the different actors and players here in Detroit. And that Spirit and Roots um, conference was probably my first social justice event that I had ever attended. And I really appreciate, I'll never forget how you really questioned the safety in the room, the emotional and mental spiritual safety in the room based on the demographic there and the boldness to be able to speak on that. I would never, ever, ever, ever witnessed before and have been impressed ever since. And I think has helped me to develop a voice and speaking my truth within these justice spaces. So, yeah. Wow, that's such an honor to hear. Thank <laughs> you so much. Because uh, I, I, I'm inspired a lot by your work and how you carry yourself in this world. Oh, thank you. So how long have you been working within food justice space? That's a great question and one that I often get um, as it pertains to my work. And there's... I'm finding that there's two ways of going about answering that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and one is a more pragmatic, more practical response, and one is a, a possibly a much more deeper philosophical response. And the, the practical response is, um, is after my father transitioned to ancestorhood in uh, the year 2010, I started asking questions about how my family uh, got here. And so then... <clears throat> It just became a process of um, involving myself in social justice circles and finding out what the issues were. And so I started to uncover how things like structural racism were present in our food system and how it leads to chronic health disease. 
Um, and that led to different um, opportunities in terms of like organizing work, but also like paid work. And those two aren't necessarily always the same, which is very frustrating to me because um, a lot of times organizers are, are just like either they're already in very impoverished, um, very marginalized situations, or uh, we're only like one paycheck away, or we have to do something other like a paying gig in order to subsidize our organizing work so it's kind of like being a starving artist in that sort of way mm. but the the more philosophical responses that um i i feel and know in my in my body and my spirit that i've been involved in this work for much much longer time so i see uh, f food justice work as being uh, intergenerational cultural and ancestral based work that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense, and I was wondering if you were going to answer in that more um, kind of holistic way. Um, can you explain to us what does food justice look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, <clears throat> the I, I have to speak about food justice work in a very uh, personal way, and um, this is uh, also something I'm known for is that I use. Uh, analogies and, and parables and stories to convey uh, what this work looks like for for myself and as it pertains to, to me and my family and um, struggling with things like chronic health disease um, I see chronic health disease as part of the legacy of uh, not just like structural racism but also colonization of, uh, of indigenous peoples in the Americas and beyond and so what that looks like for me is um, more having a greater understanding of how um, chronic health disease showed up in my family, in particular in my father's life, just over the course of one lifetime of being here. Because once I started to do more research on how my family got here to this landmass, I also found out that people don't suffer, um, uh, family members um, don't suffer the same rate of chronic health disease back home that they do here. And so I really started to need to uh, question um, what kind of foods were we eating, but also what kind of relationship do we have with the land here. And so when we, when my, my parents came abroad in the late 1960s after the National Immigration Act of 1965 that allowed um, the hurtful and racist quotas to be removed from <clears throat> from uh, from the immigration laws, it, it made it possible for people of that uh, part of the world to then immigrate into the U.S. And so I started to see not just our citizenship change, but our relationship to land and, f and um, uh, alternatively uh, food also change. We went from being creators and producers to being uh, consumers and wage earners. And having a more transactional relationship with our food dramatically changed it because it was based on what you could afford. Can you um, say which which place you're talking about? Yeah, so um, so where my ancestors are from is the, is the Philippines, and um, where <clears throat> where my family comes from, you don't you don't necessarily have like not everyone has like a nine to five job where you get benefits from you punch in and out of the clock from. Uh, where you wear a uniform, it doesn't always look like that. Sometimes you have to hustle. Sometimes you have more than one, one hustle. And if you do have a job, maybe you have more than one uh, to make ends meet. And <clears throat> when, when, we, 
when we came here, things were uh, a lot different. Um, whereas, like, we could go out, uh, we're in the Philippines. I just visited my family in the Philippines just this past spring in February. And you could literally go out on the, the family uh, plot or compound or whatever, and there's, like, papaya trees there. There's, mm -hmm. like, mango trees and mm -hmm. all kind of stuff. And, like, you could just look up and there's just stuff hanging from the tree. There's, like, a coffee bush. I was just blown away. Like, how, how do we get to this point where we have dramatically changed our relationship to food in such a drastic way that we've lost like I don't even know what what um, what a tree looks like that produces this fruit that ends up in our store hmm. like we don't have that same kind of relationship with that and it's a serious disconnect that is killing us very literally not just figuratively and as it relates to my family that disconnect led to the um, uh, to my father passing away before his time hmm. because of how his because of how dramatically his relationship to food had changed just by coming here as an immigrant that's so scary actually mm -hmm. it, it yeah and that's what the scarier thing is that it, it's by design it's by design because a lot of these um, a lot of these things that uh, are our foods that are associated with other peoples, other cultures, other lands are now being commodified for the profit of other people. So even if I did like, even if I did want to celebrate my culture, hmm. one, it would be really hard to find all these ingredients in terms of like making a cultural dish. Um, two, it might be in a different form. Maybe it's not fresh. Maybe it's like in a can or you know, preserved, frozen, or has a lot of, like, salts and preservatives in it. Mm -hmm. So it's not the same thing. And even now, like, even, like, fresh fruit, I've noticed that um, it even tastes different than when it did when I was a kid or when I was younger. Um, because a lot of times these foods are picked before they're even ripe, so they haven't had a chance to develop all the nutrients, all the flavors and sugars that we associate with that particular food. And so we're not... Even if, even if we're eating fresh, even if we're eating um, organic, the, that only tells like one side of the story. Like we may not be getting all the nutrients and, and, and everything, minerals that we need to, to lead healthy lives. And so it, it, to me, it calls into question like the one, the industrial food system, all the laws, but also the history behind all of that. And as in particular, especially around immigration and how um, quote unquote immigrants are um, that demographic is even created and <clears throat> a lot of those lines um, go back to um, western or European um, contact in places like the Philippines or the Americas or, or other wares yeah you know <laughs> it's interesting because it makes me feel like there probably isn't a way around this. And how do we make a shift within the United States? Mm -hmm. So that's my <clears throat> next question is, what is the decolonizing? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, when our food isn't even, you know, ripening on the vine like it's supposed to. Yeah, that's a really complicated question. I don't have a, a neat and tidy answer, but I can tell you um, some of the small ways in which um, we can start to understand what decolonizing means within the U.S. context. 
um, because it might it might mean something different here than what it might mean back home quote unquote um here like part part well let me back up decolonizing is the process by which we unlearn how we have been fashioned or conditioned to be um, within this global context of Western imperialism and colonialism as it relates to the, the United States and the global project that um, the United States has um, manifested, not just here in the Americas, but in its possessions around the world, like, um, like uh, all the possessions that they acquired after the Spanish-American War. <laughs> A lot of people don't realize that the Philippines is one, one of the first uh, U.S. imperialist possessions. <laughs> They, you know, they call this a, a U.S. Commonwealth, but that's just a euphemism for saying you a colony of the U.S. Right. And so there's there's a lot of things wrapped up into that in terms of my understanding of decolon decolonization of the process um, by which is unlearning um, some of the things around like uh, American exceptionalism, like there's this idea of the the American dream. If you work hard enough you know, you can um, obtain anything that you want. So this idea of like meritocracy is a is a falsehood that I had to come to grips with and my father had to come to grips with that really challenged his sense of self, his sense of identity, his sense of masculinity, his sense of being a caregiver and a father and a parent. Um, and that, a lot of that also led to his untimely demise as well. So seeing how, um, these this process of conditioning around u.s imperialism and american exceptionalism had uh fixated itself in my my father's body and mind uh to the point of him leaving this world in an untimely manner because it evolved itself into chronic health disease mm -hmm. and so it's a very serious matter it's, this is not something that i speak about lightly or I um, use buzz, buzzwords to make me sound more educated or more informed. Hmm. Um, and this is part of the reason why I use personal accounts and stories and analogies to convey how serious this matter really is. Um, and so for, for me and my family, um, decolonization is an intergenerational process by which we start unlearning but we also start healing and reclaiming ancestral traditions, ancestral technologies um, to replace that, um, those things that we're attempting to unlearn. And so in the place of um, thinking merit meritocracy is a way to success, well, what, what do we have in my ancestral lineage to debunk that, but also um, to reclaim my sense of identity as someone in the Philippine diaspora. Mm -hmm. So what, what does that process look like? And the term that is often used is this term of decolonizing. And so within, within that, in, implied within that, is this idea of re-indigenizing. So reclaiming ancestral traditions, in particular ones that are um, associated with, um, with the earth, mm -hmm. uh, earth-based traditions, sub subsistence traditions, um, your sense of cosmology, your sense mm. of spirituality, mm -hmm. um, your sense of um, how you identify in terms of gender. Mm -hmm. It's so, it's so um, wide and varied.
it used to really start to question um, things that you would uh, often take for granted or assume about yourself. Um, and it really flips your, your world upside down. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the inspiration that I get in terms of food justice, but also decolonization work uh, comes from people who I consider elders, elder brothers and sisters, or uh, other folks within the Philippinex diaspora that have been doing this work since then or before then. Uh, one text in particular that um, I often bring up is uh, Lenny Mendoza Strobel's book. Hmm. Uh, it's called Coming Full Circle, the Process of Decolonization for Post-1965 Filipino Americans. I know that's a long ass title, but it was uh, very instructive for me in terms of understanding how decolonization shows up for folks within the diaspora, in particular, the uh, Philippine diaspora in the Americas. Um, because there's very, there's very little written about um, things like post-traumatic stress di disorder and other um, and epigenetics and th those sorts of things when it comes to the Philippine diaspora. There's a lot of things written about like more East Asian ethnic groups, um, like uh, Koreans, um, Taiwanese, uh, Chinese, and, and other folks. But there's very, for some reason, there's very little written about Philippine people in the diaspora and in the Americas. I don't know why, but um, this particular book by uh, Lenny Strobel was a really fundamental for me in terms of my own understanding and how we relate to this, this process and this term of decolonization. Wow, so much. Uh, when you're talking about your father, uh, I, it, I say the similar thing about my father as a black man. Um, the level, the pressure and the stress of being a black man within this system, uh, within the United States, it definitely advances um, the cosmic journey <laughs> in terms of when that begins. Uh, and it took me a long time not to be angry about that and, and completely all out like frustrated for sure. And your comment about the relationship to the land, you know, this is so important and I really wanna kind of get into that because a couple things. I do believe that the whole process of enslaving us within this um, colonial system is to separate us from our ancestors, but definitely separating us from the land, which includes the cosmos, um, because that's where so much information lies. And you even feel it when you're gardening without gloves, with bare hands. If you're, you're in the earth, you can feel the electricity and how that gives you just energy on this, you know, more esoteric level uh it's like a it, it gets into that electrical body that you you're tapping into with reiki i, I think and um it that right there is something that i really love about afrofuturism giving us permission to claim the cosmologies and and kind of giving us you know this this permission to have a deeper relationship with our environment um instead of just passing through it with our cars, right? And and in in that awakening of the connecting with the land, that alone um, 
does bring us back into that ancestral space, uh, which is really beautiful. And as a Black American, you know, unfortunately, we don't have necessarily one place or, or culture to tap into to give us all the information. We're pulling from all that resides in our DNA. Um, but at the exact same time, it's really fun to be able to learn from everybody um, about how to recenter and decolonize. Yeah, absolutely. That the the land piece is is very key. So I'm I'm, I'm really glad that that was uh, very present for you. Um, that's a connection that um, that I hope when people hear me speak, um, that's a connection that I hope that people make um, make themselves. Uh, and <clears throat> to the extent that we collectively see land and earth as an extension of ourselves and also our extension of how we understand the cosmos because everything that's in the ground is is up there mm -hmm. and vice versa um, <clears throat> so the more that we can connect to the earth the more we can understand ourselves you know I'm, I'm learning recently um, that um, in our Sometimes in our most intimate relationships are, is an opportunity to practice how to be with ourselves. Um, when, we, when we start like navigating different boundaries in order to retain our sense of self, um, there's also a relationship that we need to maintain with the earth and the planet in our immediate environment to also understand ourselves too. So there's a lot to gain by seeing, seeing the earth as an extension of our body. Um, the earth and the water itself are sentient beings in themselves and um, <clears throat> once we start changing our relationship to the earth as from this commodity to a sentient being then we can start um, formulating practices and traditions um, that bring back a sense of reverence and sacredness into our lives and that's really that's essentially what's missing and because that's missing that's what's been killing us as well in terms of like chronic health disease and um, and that sort of thing because us, some of us like my father was using food to cope with being a quote-unquote immigrant and not really being accepted into the social strata in a way that he found dignified yeah I'm an emotional eater so I, I definitely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and and I do have to be careful um, about what I'm eating, and I'm very cognizant when I travel. And I'm like I'm going back into the United States, which means that I need to eat less of all of these different things because of how they're just messing with our food so much. The um, all the chemicals. I, and it's interesting. You can like almost taste it or feel it immediately when you come back home. Um, or if you, you know, a, a friend of mine went to to a certain part of a small town in the U.S. I don't want to say. <laughs> I don't want to call anyone out. But he was he was home for literally um, a couple days and ate all this, you know, the good old soul food and drank the water, the area, and like literally got incredibly sick the next day. Um, and 
And it, it really is, it could be anything from quality of food or quality of air or quality of water, you know, but our quality is constantly being compromised because of ca more capitalist kind of agenda. You know, it's all about the money and the bottom line. And uh, that's why the industrial food complex has just gotten way out of control. And um, becoming more, I think, hyper-local is one step to combating, um, combating that, I, I hope, I think. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> eating, eating seasonal foods is one way that we can combat that. Um, decolon decolonization goes a lot further than eating seasonal locally produced foods but it, that often is an entry point for people to start questioning how does their daily existence impact our earth or the earth or our earth bodies or other sentient beings on this planet or in this cosmos yeah i think we're of that generation now that we need to question all the systems because our lives are ruled by these systems, right? Like we don't really know the materials that make up our computer. We don't really know where our clothes are coming from. We really don't know where our food is coming from. You know, there's even the water that's bottled. We don't know where the water is actually from. Um, so we're in a space of convenience and just kind of receiving instead of questioning and, you know, analyzing. Uh, and I think that more than anything, when we're talking about decolonization, it's literally just question the system in which you're in, in mm -hmm. all if it's variation, and and in all the ways that it shows up in your life. Like, why is it that it's even present in this in this one particular space? You know, like why am I doing it this way, or why do I feel the need to dress a certain way, or why do I feel the need to to um, to issue maybe certain um, ideas about how food is healing and can heal you even from cancer. Why am I just negating that right away instead of maybe pausing to see why, why people say that? Why could that be true? Um, so it gives us these wonderful possibilities, decolonization. Yeah, totally. So in like changing our relationship to the earth and to the soil and to the environment also radically changes our relationship to food as well. Um, I, I saw that with my father and I'm also now seeing it with my, my brother who was um, diagnosed with stage four cancer. Like I see how he stress eats too. Um, and um, I plan to write more about this, but I also see like how emotions are welled up inside of us, in particular the emotions of grief and anger. Mm. Um, my, my brother has... Uh, cancer in his liver and the liver is the organ that's responsible for cleansing toxins out of our body but it's also an organ that's associated with um, unresolved um, anger mm -hmm. and so that that organ is greatly impacted whenever you hold on to grudges whenever we hold on to anger whenever we hang on to rage and because he hasn't been able to process his feelings in a way that is healthy and dignified that he's held onto it to the point where he's gotten sick and it's really compromised his health. Mm -hmm. And in doing, in doing so, he has found comfort in the form of food mm -hmm. that may not necessarily be healthy for him. But what I'm essentially trying to say is that I'm one, I'm not blaming him. I'm not blaming the victim. This is just how 
we as diasporic people on a landmass that we're not native to are finding accessible ways to cope with um, being minimized in this social project of U.S. imperialism, Western or European imperialism and colonialism. And so not being able to identify readily as people that uh, do benefit from that system is very harmful and hurtful. And a lot of times we can't, we don't feel like we can express ourselves freely in a way that is humane and dignified. And so a lot of times we end up holding those emotions within ourselves. And I also mentioned the emotion of grief. Grief is very present in my life, me personally and individually. <clears throat> and I noticed that the, the organs that are responsible for holding grief is your lungs. And I'm always like hyper vigilant and aware of like how I hold my breath. A lot of times it just goes as far as like the upper part of my chest and the <clears throat> lower part of my lungs and diaphragm really don't get a chance to um, respond in a very full way. Like I have to be very conscious to take a full breath. I, I have to be conscious of how straight my posture is. I have to be aware of uh, how much I'm slouching or um, how pulled back my shoulders are. And <clears throat> it's this daily reminder of how much grief that uh, is still unresolved within my own body that may not necessarily be from my personal life. It may not be from my personal life experience. It may be something that I, that I inherited from my father and his before him. And so this is not just like work that I am doing for my own personal health. This is uh, something I'm doing. This is healing work. Decolon decolonization is healing work. And it, you're healing. When you heal yourself, you heal your ancestors too. Yeah, and future generations. Absolutely. You keep you keep the cycle yeah. from perpetuating itself. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so, so important, so key. And as you were talking, I'm like, oh, how am I <laughs> how am I sitting? How am I breathing? Let me get my breath together because I know I got grief. <laughs> um, and so but it is an awareness of how our emotions are are um, residing within our bodies and, and it helps us to just become more attuned to our bodies and, and, and create a deeper awareness um, because we can get caught up in the daily everything and we kind of exist outside our bodies you know even mentally you know existing outside of ourselves um, so we don't really feel the emotions we don't really feel our bodies um, until it's too late um, so that is a that's a really good advice for us to, to always good reminder for us um, I wanted to ask a question you kind of answered it but how would one um, maybe for like one small step how would you say a person can decolonize daily yeah um, I was I was thinking about that earlier um, one one um, one skill is learning to listen in ways, in unconventional ways. And I'm, I'm attempting to figure out how to articulate this part. So, like sometimes you have to like listen to what someone's saying, but you also have to listen to what not, what's not being said too. Like uh, let's, let's take the example of like the idea of like um, locally produced food. Like, 
yeah that's something i that's on paper is a really good thing i can get with that um then like the there's i find something in my mind i don't know where it comes from but i find uh, find something in my mind tugging at me and asking the question like well who's local food you know what what does that mean who's determining what local is when for uh native folks for native identified folks uh folks that identify as anishinaabe they might think local food is something totally different than what we ha- readily have available because what is determined to be local is, has been determined by some other demographic altogether that is part of the problem in the first place so um as as someone who is personally attempting to reclaim my own indigeneity and ancestry there we i have to constantly question everything but it comes from this place of wanting to be uh, more dignified i want to reclaim my own sense of humanity i want to cre- reclaim my own sense of um, ancestry my own sense of reverence and sacredness within this plane of existence um, so how can we decolonize on a daily basis is one just asking questions and learning to change our listening learning to be uh, more critical and a, a lot of this skill was developed very early on for me as um, as a second generation Philippine American it's like I had to question everything because the way that I was raised was different than my American counterparts like I couldn't cross the street until I was like I don't know a certain age right which was a lot older than how my American counterparts were able to do things so they had a lot more social freedoms and I had that at a very early age I I was asking I was challenging things that a lot of other people took for granted and I think it was that that um that personal account, that history, that upbringing that led into my ability to question things today as an adult and see that the, the many overarching connections that we have between the industrial food system here and the colonization of peoples in other places because a lot of these foods come from places that were f- former or in some way still economically uh, vestiges of uh, Western and Western and European colonialism and so to 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 get back to your question how do we decolonize daily is just um learning to listen differently learn to be learning to be critical um and learning to ask questions i love it listen analyze and ask those questions Mm -hmm. um even if you might not get answers (laughs) and so my last question is a the pleasure principle question. I'm all about joy and pleasure. And um, my pleasure principle uh, is all about um, just really making sure that you are um, engaged in every single moment in more of a pleasurable way. And if you're not, kind of checking in and seeing why is this not bringing me pleasure? Uh, and what can I do to make that shift? So my question is for you, what brings you joy? How do you bring pleasure into your into your life and into your work? Mm, yeah, that's a really great question. I love that question. Um, 
I want to answer that directly, but there's like this thing inside of me <laughs> tugging at me. Um, like before I could even get to this point and understand um, how pleasure shows up in my life and how congruent I am to my own sense of pleasure is I, I really had to understand this idea of like codependency and how that showed up in my life and how that wasn't really serving me in my best interest. And so my idea of pleasure is um, learning to become my fullest self. I don't, I don't say my best self because I don't want to put a value on it. Like, what do you mean by best? Um, so I just regulate to say my fullest self, whatever that might be. And that might change on a daily basis. That might change from sitting here to sitting over there. And so <clears throat> on a daily basis, I, I just um, commit to being my fullest self, whatever that might be in that moment. Now, in order for me have, to have even got to that point, I had to understand how I, was, how I was constantly on a daily basis, like giving my power away. And what that looked like for me in terms of like codependency is like I was often looking for pleasure outside of myself. And that was, um, it was debilitating to think that I myself couldn't understand or know or experience pleasure by myself. Like I had to do it with something or someone else and that that interaction or that connection brought pleasure. And so um, where that was com ultimately coming from is part of this idea of decolonizing and healing is that I didn't see myself as someone that could provide pleasure for myself. It was something inherently um, and fundamentally uh, of a colonial mindset of being a colonized peoples, of being a colonized person that I had to, in order to heal from that, I had to let go uh, of all these internal messages saying that I was otherwise, that I was lesser than, that I wasn't desirable, that I couldn't um, provide myself pleasure, and that pleasure came from possibly having like power over somebody else. And that's really fucked up to say, um, but that's what I was taught. And so in, in my understanding of my own uh, gender and sexuality, um, and also this idea of pleasure comes from um, dismantling internal systems of codependency, in particular uh, the system of patriarchy, the system of heteronormativity, um, the uh, system of um, structural racism and anti-blackness. All of that is wrapped up into one, and that's part of the process of also decolonizing and healing work that I do within food justice. I love it. And it's so true. Pleasure. We're taught that pleasure is outside of us. And sometimes we're not given that permission to experience and produce pleasure ourselves. Um, so that's wonderful. Thank you, Shane, for sharing all your wisdom with us. Um, I want to ask the audience, how do you decolonize your destiny? I want you to email me at decolonizeyourdestiny at gmail.com and I will uh, talk about it on air. And Shane, how do we reach you? Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, asking me that. Um, I have an Instagram account, which is at uh, 313philippinex, F-I-L-I-P-I-N-X. Uh, and I have a website, um, foodashealing.com. Thank you so much. I know we're going to hear more from you and all your wonderful work. And remember, guys, to invest in your liberation and decolonize your destiny. I'm Ingrid LaFleur. Until next time. Bye.